Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. We do welcome you to Bite Into It, where we talk uh, technology, computing, the internet, uh, all of the things that are helping to sustain us uh, while we spend some more time indoors at the moment. Um, excited for the show. Um, now I've kind of got used to the no touchy-touchy kind of stuff around equipment, and we've got some good Glen 20 supplies here. Uh, excited to be with uh, Laura Summers. How are you? Hey, hey. Uh, also, Dan McGanty, how are you doing? Yeah, very well. Keeping healthy. Keeping healthy. Yeah. Um, how, how have your weeks been in technology? Has it been a good week, uh, so-so week? Um, I'm finding that I'm probably going to have to upgrade my graphics card on my PC uh, yeah. uh, for the first time ever. Um, and I've just been playing a lot of video games. So it's, well, are business those, as are usual for me. two things related, Dan? Yeah, <laughs> very, very much related. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I can feel that. Um, how about yourself, Laura? Um, oh, look, you know, fighting with video conferencing apps a little bit, also trying to get people off Zoom and mostly being unsuccessful. Mm, yeah. Um, how about you, Warren? Uh, it's been okay. A, a bit of the, the same of those things. Um, I think, yeah, doing okay. It's kind of... It, it's weird to kind of figure out the the energy of doing like video catch-ups and phone catch-ups and stuff like that. I, I didn't realize how much I relied on kind of the signals of kind of, you know, body language and all of those mm. things. So it's just a different energy. But, you know, also mm. really happy still to be doing stuff and um, sort of involved. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, it's going to be a good show uh, tonight. Um, we, we can be a, a pretty good city to cycle in uh, here in Melbourne, but um, one organisation is digging a little bit deeper um, on the best and worst places to ride, um, as voted by you, uh, the listeners, and, uh, and other folks. Um, we'll be talking to the director of CrowdSpot um, about BikeSpot 2020 uh, in a few minutes uh, on the show. Um, also, there's a uh, super cool new enterprise um, that's looking at uh, a hybrid computer chip which integrates live neurons with traditional silicon computing, which uh, sounds very um, sci-fi. Um, we'll have a chat to Cortical Labs uh, a little bit later in the show about uh, what's happening there. But um, before those things, uh, there is uh, a bit of news going on. Uh, Laura, there's some stuff happening online now that we're sort of living, living there now. Yeah, well, perhaps somewhat predictably. So now that everybody is sitting at home stuck and with the only forms of interaction available to them are their devices, we've seen a um, surge of online abuse um, along with screen use during this pandemic. Um, and also there's been a surge of scams and phishing attempts. So um, to talk to the first one, um, the Age released an interesting article that was talking about this um, spike in online abuse and cyberbullying um, that's being seen. Um, the eSafety Commissioner Julie Inman Grant said that there was a 40% increase in reports over the the past three weeks, which is pretty freaking huge mm. um, uh, compared with the previous 12-month weekly average. Um, reports of image-based abuse had increased by about 86%, while reports about um, cyberbullying of children went up 21%. Um, so obviously this is early in the pandemic. We know that we have quite a long ways to go to stay at home and try and keep ourselves entertained. So hopefully we can find some more constructive uses for this kind of energy and find ways to fill the gap that we're all feeling in terms of that, that need for social connection and human intimacy. I have to admit, like, I've just been like actually fantasizing about hugging my friends 
And I, I feel like I'm not the only one. Like, I think we're all just realizing how much we really, really need that that mm. human contact and connection. So That this... and a palmer and a pot would be fantastic. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, my God. Um, and uh, in addition to this this online abuse and, like, these sorts of um, problems, people are getting Zoom bombed. You've probably seen that, that happening. People are, like, calling in random Zoom IDs and, and then just, like, kind of hijacking people's meetings. Um and there's also been a surge in um, scams and specifically COVID-19 scams. So if you're interested in finding out what's happening and protecting yourself from that, I check, I'd check out scamwatch.gov.au and they have a section on COVID-19. Um, and just a reminder that there are no vaccines and no cures available, so do not buy them online. Interesting. Um, one thing that we can get control over, though, is uh, our PlayStation 5 and Dan... Um, I don't know. Are you a PlayStation fan? Uh, yeah, I'm a video game fan in general. So mm. I, I'm I'm always excited to see what Xbox, PlayStation, Nintendo always have to release. So mm. um, Sony has uh, shown off their shape of the new PlayStation Five controller. Um, they've they're kind of kept with form while innovating as much as possible. Um, I think everyone remembers the boomerang controller from the PlayStation 3 that was not received well. So they're keeping with form. It's a little bit more, um, I'd say, rounded, uh, looking more like a PlayStation, uh, sorry, an Xbox controller. Mm. Um, it's removed the light bar from the top and placed it at the sign of the sides of the sensor pad. Um, and probably the biggest uh, hardware uh, update for PlayStation 5 controller is the haptic feedback that they've announced previously, but um, they've explained that some ways it could be instituted is uh, if a game like you're walking through water or mud or something, you can get a response like you're walking through the mud and mm. Um, mm. yeah, uh, little motors will rotate to, mm. um, to, um, to show off that sensation and stuff like that. So mm. yeah, um, moving, moving forward. Mm. Little by little. Do you, what do you guys think about the actual aesthetics of it? It kind of leaves me a little bit cold. Um, maybe I'm just so used to seeing like the, the sort of black plastic. It's this weird combination of yeah, the, the sort of black and white. Yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of like iRobot, the <laughs> um, the design from the movie iRobot. It has a little bit of a Wally vibe to me. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Like it's, I can see they're trying to like change up that plastic case style, like that full black mm. plastic plastic case. Um, I'd like to see, like, I mean, this is just me, but I would really like to see game controllers and gaming in general, like, experiment with some feminine aesthetics and maybe mm. some, like, rose gold or something, like, yeah. totally out they, there. They often do, but it's always, like, a uh, limited edition or a special edition kind of uh, afterthought years yeah. after the console comes out. So it's never, right. like, a, a right-up-front kind of aesthetic thing. But, um, mm. yeah, it would be good to see something released uh straight away you know like mm. like that and also mm. i saw a meme about the um design and how the back controller uh buttons the left and right trigger buttons uh are once again exposed so if you leave it on the couch it will um and you get up and sit back down it often fast forwards or rewinds your netflix show so uh, they haven't fixed that uh that issue so it's mm. still going to be yeah the best design for unintentionally fast forwarding or rewinding your, uh, I'm imagining my kittens playing with this and they, they like to chew the corners of all of my devices. Mm. So they worked out how to turn off my iPad, and, which <laughs> they've done several times while I've been doing yoga. <laughs> Little pains. Um, so I'm just looking at this device thinking like they would work out how to like press those buttons yeah. so fast. Well, yeah, they're pretty um, 
uh, exposed, so it wouldn't be hard to knock them or hopefully uh, they, yeah, they can remedy that issue before they actually release the controller. Mm. Uh, one place that's trying to do something about uh, exposure is the uh, Singaporean government uh, who have introduced a, um, a new tracking app um, to get to grips with um, the coronavirus. Um, have been doing a pretty good job over there. I think the, the, um, they've really flattened the curve pretty well. Um, we're now joined on the air by uh, Denim Sadler, who's um, been keeping an eye on the, the technology behind these tracking apps. Um, Denim, should we be worried in Australia? What's, what's the state of play here? Um, yeah, basically we're not too sure what the government's doing in terms of, in terms of this. As you said, Singapore has launched this app, which is called Trace Together, quite a few weeks ago now, and that's kind of helps use technology to do the contact tracing process, which at the moment in Australia, if you get diagnosed with the virus, you kind of get given a questionnaire or you have a chat to a public official about where you've been over the last two weeks and who you've come into contact with and who you might have given the virus to, and that's very time-consuming process, an expensive process, having people do it. So but what Singapore have done is launched this app, and it's an official government app that uses kind of the Bluetooth on the phone to tell whether you've been in contact with someone, and it kind of logs that. And then if you get diagnosed with the virus, it gets uploaded, and the government can then get in touch with people. It does automatically through the app sometimes as well. To warn you, if you've had close contact, you might need to go into quarantine, or if you just had contact to monitor your symptoms. Um, there is a growing push to launch something like that in Australia. There's obviously a lot of privacy concerns, but at the moment, yeah, we're not too... There's a lot of reports that the government's looking at it and reviewing what Singapore is doing, but, yeah, we're not too sure at the moment whether it's something that we're going to see here. So um, when, when, when this app is installed, like, does, does the person who's potentially been diagnosed, um, is it just them who needs to have the app, or does everyone they've been in contact with also need to have the app in order for that tracing to work? Yeah, that's that's kind of the big flaw with this this strategy is that you need really mass usage of it. Like if it was in Australia, you'd need millions of people to have it installed because, yeah, you need both people to have the phone installed and to kind of voluntarily allow their Bluetooth to be turned on to have those contacts. So in, in Singapore, I think within the first day, about half a million people downloaded it and they've got millions of people on it now. But to be effective, yeah, you need to convince everyone to, to download it and trust the privacy aspects of it as well. I feel like all those uh, all those apps out there that um, promise to tell you who's been looking at your Instagram app and stuff like that uh, are finally sort of reaching their moment where we can now kind of figure out where we've been um, exposed to coronavirus. Surely, surely this is the one thing that we should opt in to. Um, you, you kind of, I, I think I saw on your Twitter that you speculated uh, one of the Canberra agencies might be doing a bit of sneaky recruiting for this. Um, so the rumours go. Yeah, that's the Digital Transformation Agency, which which would be the agency kind of tasked with either developing them themselves or kind of working with private developers to, to make this. And they've been on a bit of a hiring spree this week. They kind of posted a lot of job ads and they open and close within about four or five days for a lot of roles that did seem suspiciously like it could could be for this. We don't we don't know if it is yet, and they haven't said anything yet, obviously. But yeah, they've been on the hunt for kind of a privacy officer and a legal officer and a lot of the tech skills as well that would be needed to build this so that could well be that and there's also a lot of private developers that are already kind of making their own versions of the app that you'd think to be successful it would need government backing and promotion to get out there to everyone um do you know how this compares to the european um tool that's been released recently called very confusingly p-e-p-p-dash-p-t which is pan-european privacy preserving proximity tracing 
Yeah. I saw that to catch the acronyms. I know, um, right? Like, how how freaking long does it need to be? <laughs> um, but like, I'm I'm I am really curious because my understanding is that there's a lot of devil in the detail and how you might implement this kind of tracing system. So I'm just curious if you know how like this the Singapore version traced together compares to something like PEPT. Yeah, they're very they're very close, and the the basics of the app are very similar. I think the big difference, and there's a big push, there's a push in Australia as well amongst digital and civil rights advocates as well, but in similar to the European one, is the Singapore app works by the government's kind of the central intermediary, intermediary, so they kind of have control over once someone gets diagnosed to then pass on that information to the close contacts. And there's a push in Europe and in Australia that, to take the government kind of out of the process because it might people obviously concerned with the government having access to who you've been in contact with. And then, so that would differ, that would be push. I think it's similar to Europe and in Australia, that it would be kind of a list of ID numbers, which is just like a randomly generated number. It's published publicly of the people who's been diagnosed that they've come into contact with, and then either the app does it for you or you just have to check whether you're on that list and whether you've had contact. And that will kind of take the government out of the process. So that's what mm. they're pushing for in Europe and the mm. European data commissioner just came out recently and said they're kind of pushing for a European-wide model for these sort of apps. So they're, they're supporting it, but they're obviously trying to make sure it's as private as possible. So, Denim, as, uh, as another person also sporting a, an isolation moustache, is that a, a kind of attempt to sort of scramble your communications? Um, should we be getting more sophisticated there, or what's your recommendation? I was waiting for the moustache to come out, so I appreciate that. Come along, all right. But, um, yeah, I think it's it's obviously a concern privacy-wise, and I think people just view it as kind of a tracking app, even though it actually doesn't track your location. So I think there's a lot to, to overcome in terms of getting people to trust it enough to be widespread enough to be effective. So I think there's a lot of barriers to overcome in terms of that. Mm. Well, thanks for, thanks for um, wording us up there, Denim. And uh, if anything does come up, just, uh, just let us know as well. We'll have to get you back in. Will do. Thanks for having me. Melbourne's own. Triple R. This is Laura, Dan and Warren with you here. Um, a few years back, uh, I think at the uh, Sustainable Living Festival, a, a great idea um, uh, called Bike Spot uh, came out and did a, a bit of a pass at figuring out um, uh, where, where cyclists feel it is safe to cycle, um, where it's unsafe to cycle. And they did such a good job of it that um, they are back. It's an initiative of CrowdSpot and also the uh, Amy Gillette Foundation, which uh, do a great job of looking after the interests of um, cyclists um, uh, in Victoria and further abroad. And we're now joined on the phone by the director of CrowdSpot, uh, Anthony Eisenberg. Anthony, thanks for coming and hanging out with us tonight. Thanks for having me. Um, what, what was the what was the nucleus for this idea? What um, made everyone think um, we need to get a bit of a, a crowdsource map of, of what cycling is like in Victoria? Right. So, yeah. So going back to I think where you mentioned it all sort of started you know, four or five years ago. I was thinking that um, the community weren't really engaged in the process for where cycling cycling improvements needed to be. So I thought, what if we could create a, an online map, an interactive map where people could mark uh, the locations where they, they feel unsafe and other people could see that, um, transparent and could comment and vote on those same locations and then say that top, the top 10 locations or unsafe spots, as we're calling them, uh, would, uh, would be illuminated and that could be factored into to better planning. Mm. Um I'm going to ask this right off the bat. I've looked at some of the top tens um, for for better and worse over the years. Swanston Street is always seems to be in both lists. Is it bad or is it good? 
What's what's your opinion on Swanston Strait? Um, well, I think <laughs> I'm going to say accurately reflecting in in both. It's it's a bit of both, and it depends who you are and maybe the type of um, the way you, you like to ride bicycle. I think mm. there's a there's a there's a shared space there, um, mm. particularly when trams are you know pulling up to a tram stop, and That's so right. that can be the cause of a bit of confusion. But there's but you get a pretty free run at it when there's no trams there, so. You don't have cars to deal with or think about, so that's a positive. So mm. it's, it's a little bit of both. And how did the Amy Gillette Foundation get involved? What's the history there? Yeah, well, back in 2016, we um, we partnered with the Squeaky Wheel, and we we had um, access to a TAC Community Road Safety Grant. And unfortunately, the Squeaky Wheel um, isn't around today, and so I really wanted to launch uh, Bike Spot 2020, four years after we did it back in 2016, and. Uh, Just a breaking up a little bit there, but um, we'll, we'll stick with it. Um, what, what can you tell us a bit about the the first response to the um, the first round that you did? I think you had a few thousand uh, bits of input um, and a pretty detailed map. Um, yeah. What, what was the first kind of uh, experience like? Yeah, it was really positive. I mean, we'd never done it before, so we there wasn't an expectation there. But you know, twenty five hundred data points uh, across metropolitan Melbourne. That was the spatial scope, uh, Metro Melbourne was really positive and you know, like I said we hadn't done it before so we didn't know what to expect and a really good response uh, we isolated sort of the top 10 unsafe spots along South Bank Promenade uh, you know where it's a shared space between people mm. walking and, and people riding and it's it can be a bit stressful for some and also the uh, you know Haymarket Roundabout um, was number two and so that, that received about $100,000 worth of funding after we did the bike spot project so I mean purely uh, in response to what we did, but we like to think it sort of played, played a role in that as well. Um, but I guess that one of the main things that uh, which spurred us on to, to really crystallise the value of this data was that it's, it's not really captured anywhere else, the perception, you know, how people feel on the road. You know, a lot of planning, they focus on historical crash statistics to make their, their big decisions, but they're not really factored about um, how people feel. And that's a really important thing because... It has a big impact on people's willingness to, to jump on a bike and ride. So that needs to be factored into. I noticed that there's some um, discrepancy in some of that data from 2016 between like what people perceive and what the actual like crash statistics are. Um, and I'm I'm curious like what do you think drives that that sort of gap? Like why is there a sense that something is is that there like a lag in opinion between like you know how safe an area is and like how safe it was historically, for instance? Yeah, I guess that that was one of the main findings out there. There were, you know, in the top 10, there was probably only two uh, locations where there was a high crash history and um, a high perception of or lack of safety. Uh, so, what, I mean, what that's, that's really saying is that, you know, where people, um, you know, with, with crashes, uh, if they're not feeling safe there, they might take more caution. That's, there's one reason to that. So there's less, less crashes at those locations where people feel unsafe. That's probably one of the main takeaways, Um and that might be a result of that discrepancy. Um, but really, the predominant feature around uh, you know, why people don't feel safe, it's, it's mixing with traffic and, and not feeling protected on the road and feeling vulnerable, and that's sort of the main indicator there. So 
there's a big emphasis on um, building safe cycling infrastructure. Um, with the like with the data that you've created, uh, like you've got a uniquely Melbourne perspective. Are you looking at data from any other cities, or like say like uh, like Copenhagen, which is like one of the biggest cycling cities in the world? Are you trying to uh, see what they've done with their data, or um, and trying to uh, apply that to a Melbourne setting? Um, it's a good question. I mean, one of the first, the biggest differences is between what we did in 2016 and what we're doing in Bike Spot 2020. And you can go jump online and go to bikespot.org and see the map for yourself. Is we've we've made this map statewide, so we've we've broadened it out from Metro Melbourne to to fully statewide, and that'll be really interesting comparing regional Victoria and and towns and with urban areas. But we now we haven't really looked um, broad. I think. Uh, I I mean, it would be really interesting. I haven't come across any other cities or projects where they're doing sort of larger scale outsourcing of safety perceptions. I mean, that, those other places, like Denmark and the Netherlands, are leading the way in the sorts of cycling infrastructure they're laying out on the ground. But um, I guess just utilising the networks that we have here and the communities that we have here is sort of keeping it local to start with. Um, I'm curious, um, because aside from, like, obviously the infrastructure, the space for the bikes, the lighting for them, um, there's also, like, this sort of question of the road culture and drivers actually, like, feeling like cyclists belong on the road as well and, like, not being aggressive. Like, do you do you have any thoughts about how we can shift some of the, like, bad behavior and aggressive driving you see that seems like maybe more Australian and less European? Yeah, I mean, it's... I think there's a... You know, different areas, different areas around the city and regional areas will have different. Um, you know, I mean, well, first off the bat, a lot of a lot of bike riders drive and a lot of you know car drivers ride, and that's a really positive thing. Um, more people we can get out on bikes is also positive because you know, it's, you know, sort of power in numbers on the road. Uh, but also with cycling infrastructure, if it's if it's, it really helps legitimise um, place and space on the road, and that and that does a lot of um, a lot of for shifting driver mindset. I mean, what will be really interesting is that we can compare different locations across the state around um, that might have a high relative incidence of, of poor driver behaviour um, compared to other issues that I've experienced. But I think to make it safer on, out on the roads, more people will ride and then more people will see more riders and it'll be safer for everyone. Um, was there anything in the data that surprised you about uh, Victorian cycle, cycling habits? Uh, from from 2016, I, I think, you know, I have we've collected over 1,500 data points in a week uh, for this bike spot 2020. I haven't yet to dive into it, but what I guess the focus of the 2016 project was that comparison between perceptions of safety and historical crashes, and I might have been a little bit surprised by how um, you know how different they were. I, I thought maybe they would align a bit better, and um, but. That's really about it. I guess sometimes when you do, you look at big data and you sort of visualise it or you analyse it and you kind of go, oh, yeah, that kind of makes sense. I mean, it makes sense that people don't like mixing with, with vehicles travelling at you know, double or triple the speed that they are. <laughs> um, so that really makes sense. And that was sort of the, one of the biggest issues, obviously, that, that people experience and most stressful people. 
Uh, I'd be interested to know, I, I know there's been support from uh, a lot of local governments, uh, maybe the Department of Transport as well, I think I read in the, the press release. Um, what, what kind of expectation is there that um, you'll be able to feed some of this data into planning and um, uh, you know, funding for bike lanes and, and so forth? How does that work? Yeah, so each, um, each local, we've got 11 councils on board, um, Metropolitan Melbourne and, and Regional Councils and the Department of Transport, and the local councils will receive their local government area data set and the Department of Transport will receive the entire data set. Mm. What local councils do, they tend to produce like a bicycle strategy or transport strategy every four years and um, it, it depends where local councils are in their cycle um, between producing a strategy and so the ones that have come on board as partners tend to be the one where they're kind of thirsty for data because they're formulating these strategies. So they've, they've got a reason to sort of, I guess, collect the data and factor it into their planning. And it's one input into a range of other things that they do, land use planning, crash, like we've said. What we didn't do as well last time in 2016 was sort of follow up and say, how did you use the data and what influence does it have on um, making things safer on the road? So that's a big uh, thing that we want to factor into that monitoring and evaluation of how this data is being used um, and, and sort of answer those questions a bit better. Mm. Well, uh, CrowdSpot is kind of obviously doing more just beyond cycling. It's kind of um, other types of civic engagement as, as well. What have been some of the other kind of um, parallel stories that you've had through through CrowdSpot? Uh, I know Australians kind of like to have a bit of a go and um, and kind of, yeah. you know, we, you know, people's bins being on their property or branches hanging over or stuff like that. Um, are, are we just yeah. like a community that really likes to kind of have a, have a say and, and have a go about this stuff? Um, good question. I mean... Projects that we we tend to work on are it's really project specific, so it's not like we've got an open platform for people to sort of report graffiti or those you know tree falling down, those immediate need type things. Which we do much more strategic data collection and engagement projects. And mm. one of the more successful, or I guess in the media, that got a lot of attention was around um, young women and safety in public, mm-hmm. or B2B project that we you know we partnered with Pan International mm-hmm. and Monash University XYX Lab. And so we've done that project. Uh, it's a big issue, uh, not just in Melbourne, and we did it in Sydney and five other cities around the world. Um, and so, it's, you know, what that really led is, you know, I guess that a lot of women feel unsafe, they change their behaviour because of feeling unsafe in public space, um, and a lot more needs to be done. I think we did it, we did the project in Sydney, and the Greatest Sydney Commission came out with a, a new charter on International Women's Day. So, the, the, the projects we're doing are having impacts, which is, which is great to see. Mm. But, I guess um, right at this point, I mean, any bike riders that are out there, we, we want to just encourage everyone to, to get to bikespot.org and, and they're there safe and unsafe spots on the map. I think that's really important. And if we can build a strong data set, the, the chances of government using it to, to feed into their planning is, is even better. And what level of data do people need to put in? Like, does it take 10 minutes or two minutes or what's the ask? We're trying to always sort of have this lens of reducing barriers to participation so there's no login. Um, which some people take uh, really freely, which is excellent. Uh, you know, and it is open to, to trolling, but we want everyone to play nice. Um, you can just jump online, you add a pin on the map, and you can say it's unsafe or unsafe. You can categorise what you know, what level of unsafety it is, your level of stress, a little bit of free text, and then just some um, a little bit about yourself, your writing confidence, and, and an email if you want to stay up to date. With the project, but of course you don't have to. You can be anonymous as well, um, and it's really 
three, four minutes max. You know, that's if you, you need to find your location on the map. But you, know, you can. What other people do when they first get there is read other comments and vote and comment, and then um, they can add their own data point and spot on the map as well. I'm pleased to say um, down near my way there's uh, already 19 um, tagged bits around St Kilda Junction, so people are having a real go. And it's quite specific too. People are really honing in on like a particular lane or a particular light, so oh, yeah. it looks very granular. Yeah, the level of detail. I mean, people ride locations and routes. Um, it's, it's their daily activity. So mm. they know every little bump on the road, every little danger spot where they need to slow down, speed up, and, you know, how to pass certain certain obstacles on the road. They're really specific, but the level of data and quality of information is really high. And I mean, we've been everyone, like everyone's been dealing with coronavirus at the moment, which means that we haven't had a broad mass media um, appeal. We've had to rely on tapping into local grassroots cycling groups, which, in a way, has been better um, because we've we've tapped into the people that use the road, that that understand um, what it's like, and that they're really passionate and want to make improvements. Hmm. Well, it looks like it's off to a good start, Anthony. Um, c- congrats again for the initiative. And uh, yeah, we'll give it a plug and uh, best of luck with, with Bikespot 2020. Fantastic. Thanks for having me and everyone jump onto bikespot.org to check it out. Thank you. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Uh, just a, a little bit left in the show, but we're very excited to speak uh, about um, a new enterprise, uh, Cortical Labs, who have been working on a hybrid computer chip that integrates um, live neurons with traditional silicon computing. So um, it's maybe in that kind of messy kind of space um, uh, that's, that's really interesting. We're now joined by uh, two of the, the founding team of Cortical Labs, uh, Andy and Hon. Thanks for joining us on the show tonight. Hi, mate. Hey, uh, thanks for uh, having us on the show. No trouble at all. Um, what was what's the crazy kind of origin story behind this? What what made you um, to sort of start a team or, or be part of it to sort of go? We could totally put that on a chip and and let's do it. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's kind of like two parts to the story. The short one is just uh, like a really cool team coming together. The other one, which is the more technological one, and I guess Pon can talk a bit about this, was uh, really wanting to go somewhere where we could have an edge. When you look at what was happening with AI, it was so crowded, with deep learning especially, it was so crowded, you had huge companies with billions of dollars of backing, and there was no way you could compete with them. So it's sort of when everyone zigs, zags, try something new. Mm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, I guess it was a, it was a, a bit of a fluke chance because we were – um, we were looking at areas that had not already been tapped, and there was this big movement in AI to re-engage back with the you know the neuroscience where it came from. And so, at around that time, the Florida Institute of Neuroscience, which is you know just around the corner from us, were doing a brain symposium day. So we were like, hey, let's go down and have a chat with these neuroscientists and see what what's happening in their land. And uh, we just heard some really interesting stuff come up from Japan, where people were getting these neurons to like do like neat party tricks, like, uh, you know, separating sounds from, like, two different sources. So we were like, wow, this is cool, because now you're actually getting a brain to do stuff for you in a dish. So we said, well, you know what, let's have a look and see how far we can go with this stuff. And, uh, yeah, that was uh, the, the motivation of this. So where does the... Um this is this is so far from my field. I'm just going to ask some of the, the dumb questions. Um, 
when you say we have a brain in a dish, where does the intelligence and the kind of the raw materials of neurons um, start to come together? Where does that um, intelligence to differentiate sound from from uh, another source of data um, in its simplest form? Where does it start to interact with the neuron? Uh, yeah, Warren, we love all questions. Um, so uh, when we say in a dish, we quite literally mean in a Petri dish. So mm. these are live neurons, but they're alive outside a body, um, and they grow in a nutrient-rich media. So they grow, they have a special liquid around them, which helps them stay alive because they're not part of the body. And we grow them uh, over a bed of thousands and thousands of uh, tiny electrodes. And when they see that, and we can also stimulate them by putting like a little electric shock. Think like Frankenstein, but micro nano Frankenstein. So uh, we can stimulate them and we can see when they fire. So we can kind of talk to them. We can get some information in, we can get some information out. Um, and uh, they do self-organize, so they, they learn, and the way they learn is by uh, changing the way they connect to each other, um, by growing new connections, the same way a uh, biological, uh, well, the same way a, a, a brain inside an animal uh, would work. Exactly, exactly. And, and I think the other key bit is also, like, uh, you know, when, when we talk about growing on a bed of electron, uh, electrodes um, and stimulating them, we actually give them a virtual environment to live in. I guess you could, you know, it's almost like the matrix, but very, very primitive form. We're working with, with something that looks similar to Pong, the game, you know, where you have a paddle. And actually, mm. no, this is not in Pong because it's more like Breakout because there's only one paddle, but it's got a ball that bounces around in a box. And um, what we're trying to do is to actually give this, this uh, mini brain in a dish, you know, like arms, like a, the pedal, and then, you know, the eyes that can see the ball. And, and in this case, you know, what we're trying to do is we can show that we can actually make these neurons perform interesting tasks for us by giving it an, a, a stimulating and rich environment to, to interact with. Hmm. Now, Laura, you've, you've kind of been interested enough in what these chaps have been up to that you've joined in and, and sort of helped out um, uh, at, at Cortical Labs. What, what attracted yeah. to you and what's, what do you think is most interesting working with these two on it? Oh well, look, I've I've just been like the designer on the side and helping out a bit. But um, to be fair, I just I just think it's really fascinating to try and push the edges of science and what's possible. Um, and you think about like all the places where, in human history, we've tried to achieve something really new, really like out there, really beyond the limits of what was possible. You have all these interesting flow-on effects. Um, you know, like we have new mattresses now because we went to space and you wouldn't think oh i'm going to develop a new mattress technology but we went to space and then nasa produced a whole bunch of different kinds of foam and now we have like a whole bunch of interesting applications Mm. for that stuff so i i feel like there's a huge benefit to exploring and pushing the boundaries of what's possible and also um as andy was saying at the beginning we're seeing some plateauing with what's possible with um deep learning and Mm. um, we really want to see what would a more organic or creative or intuitive computing look like and that that seems like a really exciting space to mine one of the interesting things around um, ai i guess is the um we don't know what it's learning uh, element to it and and to machine learning as well is there is there anything that we should be thinking about in terms of uh, i guess um neurons or sort of organic matter um starting to 
think for itself and solve its own sort of challenges and so forth? Or is it so contained and the level of intelligence just so oh. kind of simple? Well, look, I, I think probably Han knows more about the, the level of what you might call sentience or awareness that would be going on. I'm, mm. I'm not a biologist or a doctor of any description. I wouldn't attempt to mm. make any classifications here. But um, So maybe, Han, do you want to respond to that one? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, uh, I think with deep learning and machine learning, it's, it's very hard to say what these uh, systems are doing because they're really black box techniques. But, you know, as far as we can tell, they, they they tend to be mostly looking for statistical patterns. There's not really much of any real symbolic like learning, um, you know. Where you know, for instance, if I were to try to describe to you the game of pong, I could describe to you as hey, there's a ball, it's going around and it's following a trajectory. When you hit it, it turns around at a 90 degree angle, and so forth. So you can use these rules to sort of like build a mental model of what this game world or this game is about. And this is kind of what biological systems do really well. Because we, we don't learn patterns, like, sorry, we, we learn how to abstract out these rules, but um, deep learning, machine learning systems don't seem to be actually doing symbolic learning in that sense. They're looking at the ball and going, oh, ball's here, twitch to the right side, or ball's that way, twitch to the left side. And so it's very reactive. It's not really planning or doing much of that, we think, at the moment. So, you know, in many cases, uh, I guess that's one of the benefits uh, we think of using a biological system. The other thing is it's, um, you know, if you think about, like, what is the, the true, the intelligence that we know exists today, and that's, you know, the human brain, right? We, we, we know that this is the only machine that's capable of intelligence. And then if we drill down and say, well, what's the brain made out from? And we say neurons. Well, there's somewhere along the, the scale of having a couple of neurons and a neural network and many networks and then a brain where you end up getting some level of this intelligence emerge. And we think it's at the network level. We think that we can get that once we start having a million or, you know, 10 million neurons start to form these connections. Um, and, you know, that's kind of like in the same scale of, say, a dragonfly uh, or a little insect. And then you get more, you know, complexity as you end up with three-dimensional structures and, you know, two-dimensional structures that then connect with other three-dimensional structures to get sort of like a brain-like uh, structure. Yeah, so in our current... Uh and our current systems, the number of neurons are sort of in the tens to hundreds of thousands. And so I'm not at all worried about that sort of uh, <clears throat> uh, being alive or sentient. Well, it's alive, but not being sentient. Um, there's this funny quote, I think, from um, Andrew Ng, which is along the lines of worrying about AI consciousness is like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. So I, I do think that it's an incredible... It's an incredibly tantalizing sort of thing to try and reach for, but I, I do really think that we're, um, we're far from that, but part of getting there will be, you know, trying really new, out there, different, powerful things, like, like what we're, you know, trying to do. So this stuff is uh, blowing my mind. Um, like, what, what kind of applications could we use this for? Like, could we run an entire city's phone network off this, or could we... Um, I don't know, analyze data from uh, mothers' groups around the country, or like what what kind of what applications could, yeah. could we use this for? It's, it's such a good question, and this is one of the things that we like are constantly workshopping ourselves because it's just so new. And I, the obvious choices would be things in robotics, things in self-driving cars, anything that requires um, some sort of cognition, um, complex, robust. Um, interaction with an environment. 
that being said, I mean, like, there's something that constantly inspires me, which is this picture of the first transistor ever built, and it's ungainly, it's got wires hanging out everywhere, you know, it's like the size of a... Um, of like a, it's like a bit smaller than the interior of a microwave. Like, it's a big thing. That's the first transistor. And, like, trying to look at that thing and then say, like, this will be the backbone of the Internet. This will be the backbone of Netflix and, you know, AlphaGo. It's like almost the mind boggles, you know. So uh, on the one hand, I think trying to figure out, like, um, what this kind of technology would be used for is we can look at how it will change the things we do today. And I think the real exciting part is that something like this existing will allow us to invent totally new things that are, like, completely different sort of to what, what we have now, sort of things that are more um, blending the boundaries between, being, you know, computers and biological uh, neural networks. So, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I mean... Uh, we can give you a few examples of what we think it would be like. Like, you know, first off the ranks, we probably think it's going to be great for robotics because, you know, robots have to live in the same environment and world that we live in, which is full of uncertainty. So they have to deal with modeling and uncertainty and planning. Um, you know, this could also be used for, say, um, you know, an offshoot technology, uh, long-term cultures of, of tissue uh, material, you know, for, for keeping cells alive. Um, and so forth. But I, I think, you know, what Andy said is true. You know, if you if you look back and you ask Bill Gates, you know, when he made Windows or Microsoft Office, like, oh, what do you think the, 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 your, your software is really going to be doing? I bet he'd say, you know what, people are going to be using this to do the spreadsheets, you know, profit loss kind of thing, maybe some database stuff. And nobody would have thought, oh, yeah, I'm going to make, make this into, like, an ultimate gaming system, or I'm going to use this to you know, train uh, artificial intelligence to do tasks for us, like speech recognition. Um, a lot of the times, people like us who make these kind of technologies are really, we like, we, we love the science, but we're also not particularly very creative, and we rely on people out there to, to, who, who see daily problems um, and, and uh, well-versed in what uh, the problems that they have to apply the same technologies that we're building to try and solve it. And this is, I guess... The, the same thing that's happened, you know, with, with the computing revolution, um, where there was a base platform technology that was developed, and then, you know, it was disseminated and made it widely available to lots of different people in different fields that they can then, you know, apply it into various um, sectors. Hmm. So uh, what does the hybrid chip uh, replace? What, what's currently doing the job that um, this might start to, to sort of supersede? Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, the natural progression would be, you know, the, the so-called AI coprocessor chips that we have at the moment. A lot of them are like GPUs, so graphical processing units. Um, that's probably one area that it probably could uh, help supplement. I, I don't think we're going to completely replace these chips. I think they're actually going to be like a, a really good addition because, I mean, if you think about it, the um, we're using the same substrate as what our brains are made from. And... We aren't particularly very good at very large computation. So you and I probably wouldn't be able to do a square root of an extremely large number that the computer could do really quickly. On the other hand, we can do a lot of things like drive a car really easily and learn a lot of these so-called uh, physical tasks um, quite well. And so we, we think that this is a really going to replace the current set of you know chips that we have, but it's going to complement it by giving machines capabilities that it never had before. 
Uh, and so you end up with this hybrid fusion of the best of both worlds. You have the biological systems that are very good at dealing with the uncertainties of the external world, but also, you know, leveraging like the, 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 the raw computational power that we have in our processes today to do extremely precise uh, uh, computation. Hmm. So if people would uh, like to get involved, um, give it a go or, or send you some problems or, or what have you, um, how can people sort of follow the story or, or um, be involved? Yeah, so uh, we, we run a really active Twitter. So, you know, uh, Twitter, the, our handle is at Quartical Labs, C-O-R-T-I-E-A-L-L-A-B-S. Um, and we also have our website, CorticalLabs.com. Uh, we have a Medium blog post as well. So if you go to the website, it's all there, and we'll be updating, uh, you know, uh, the, the the social media and the blogs with uh, with new uh, results as we come along, and also you know insights to the team and the work that we're doing. So you know, those are the best places to follow us. And also, you know, please feel free to reach out to Randy and I. We love hearing um, from other people who are interested in technology and and, you know, uh, how we can actually apply this kind of technology or work together collaboratively. We're, uh, at Harvest, we're still deep at heart scientists and thinkers, and we just love to uh, hear from the rest of the community. Well, it's a great initiative, and uh, congrats. Well done on the, on the start, and, uh, and here's to, to bigger and better things. Thank you, Ron. Awesome. Thank you. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Right into it on Triple R. Uh, that was Sample the Great and Final Form. Um, and some weird news. If you're into Borderlands 3, you can get involved in some citizen science. Uh, you can map gut microbiomes with a little arcade cabinet they've set up in-game in Sanctuary. So if you're playing Borderlands 3, give it a go and help science. That's amazing. Yeah. Please do that, and please don't do what people are doing in the UK, which is setting 5G towers on fire because they think it's in some way related to the spread of coronavirus. It is not. 5G is a frequency in the world. It has nothing to do with coronavirus. Shit be cray. Is it? Um, I, I remember the thing that was concerning me about 5G was the uh, infrastructure involved. People were saying up to 100 times more infrastructure than the 4G network. Yeah, is that, it's it's more know? it's more towers, smaller towers, and higher frequency, higher like um, amplitude. So like more frequency out in the world, basically, which is supposed to also give ah. us more connection, more connectivity, more bytes on our devices. Um, okay. But yeah, people who are worried about it think that it's going to cause us, you know, cancer problems. Like, you know, biological harm. Everyone always thinks that electronics are going to cause various forms of bio harm. We'll keep an eye on it. Uh, thanks very much to our guests for being on the show tonight. Denim, Anthony, Andy, and Hon. Thanks to you, Anthony Carew. Up next. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.